having some fun with my computer here, which decided to full-on blue screen shut down and then update itself on the rebound. So that's fun. Um, but there's actually some hope. So let's see if we can get it to work. Today we are starting a four-week series on Anabaptist history, on the roots of not just this congregation, but also the whole tradition to which we belong. A tradition which, of course, finds itself deeply interconnected with the rest of the tapestry of Christian faith, as much as I believe many of our Mennonite forebears would like to deny that fact. At its heart, Anabaptism was a back-to-the-basics movement. And in many ways, you still see that back-to-the-basics spirit evidence today. If you could see it, I've got a nice picture of the relief sale where it shows kind of humble people doing humble stuff on sawdust. That was my, that was my work yesterday morning from about 5 a.m. till about uh, 2 in the afternoon, working with their hands to doing the, the, the best they can with what's in front of them. From the beginning, Anabaptism... Wait a minute. How can I see this if I'm not connected to the Internet? Fascinating. <laughs> um, but that back to the basics movement rooted itself in a time that was anything but basic. And this yearning for simplicity that you might find in the Anabaptist community has played itself out in ways that are anything but simple. So as we prepare this month to celebrate All Saints Day at the end of October, the day after Halloween, some of you might know it as, we also are alongside, along one hand of our fellow Christians who are preparing to celebrate Reformation Sunday, Reformation Day, the Protestants, our Protestant brethren, and our Catholic brethren who celebrate All Saints Day in a way that is much more significant than we do. I think it behooves us to look at our history, our connections with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And most specifically, to look at those moments when we have rejected or been rejected, when we have cast out or been cast out, and when we have killed or been killed. Because today, or as we go through this series, but as I will hint at at the end of today, ours is not a bloodless history. And although we are very firmly a people of peace and a church of peace, we cannot claim that the, that the story of the Anabaptist movement is only a story of the water of baptism, when we know full well that it is also a story of dire bloodshed, not only as victims, but, at, but Anabaptists as victimizers as well. Here we go. Slowly catching up. The first Anabaptism 
took place 500 years ago. January 21st, 1525, which, for whatever it's worth, is still our Wi-Fi password. (laughs) A Wi-Fi password that might seem innocent, but as we will explore, implies some things about how we have viewed our own history that we make that date a significant pin on the timeline. The context for Anabaptism is fascinating because we think of 500 years ago as being so, so long, half a millennium. But it's interesting to note that many historians regard the 1500s as the beginning of the modern era. In fact, in many, in many academic circles, it's called the early modern era. Modern is not a word we're used to applying in that way. But here's how they make the case. The discovery of the Americas. 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and we've all had that drilled into our heads. A sudden awareness that not only was Europe situated in a world where there were other competing civilizations of varying power and degree, but that there were peoples that we had never even heard of, peoples that weren't mentioned in the Bible at all, the way historians at the time were arguing, well, China's in there, Africa's in there, Scripture holds all of humanity in there somewhere, and the new world shatters that. The discovery of the new world changes the way people think about their own world. That very same year, 1492, sees the reshaping of Europe itself with the Edict of Expulsion in Spain. 1492 was an incredibly eventful year for the court of Ferdinand. Not only did they send out this guy, Columbus, that everybody thought was a long shot and would never get anywhere, but they also finally conquer the last Muslim country, uh, holdouts in southern Spain, expelling not only Muslims with the Edict of Alhambra, which flee to North Africa, but the Jews as well and kicking off the Spanish Inquisition, which, despite popular culture portrayals, did not target witches, but targeted mostly Jews and Muslims. It was a purification of Western Europe in light of the threat from Eastern Europe, where the Ottoman Empire not only succeeded in destroying the last vestiges of Rome in Constantinople, but threatened the very walls of Vienna all the way across in Austria. A Europe under siege. A Europe attempting to purify itself. And a Europe suddenly able to hold communication within itself at a speed and at a low price that for centuries would have been unimaginable. With the invention of the printing press, and the arrival of the Gutenberg Bibles in your coming to a household near you. Huge seismic changes in culture that many point to as the beginning of the modern era. And it is very popular to point to these changes as being pivotal in our own history. As our day, start date comes only 30 years after 
great, these great revolutions. But appearances can sometimes be deceiving. Spain was quite far from Germany. And the wealthy households of the merchant class were quite far from the peasant hovels where Anabaptism took root. And also our focus on the technological, on modernity, on progress, blinds us to the reality of the diversity and vibrance of the Catholic Church and the European tradition before this state. The old world has much more to do with our story, I think, than does this new world of modernity. The old world of Europe had already seen various groups rise with an attempt to return to biblical scripture, even without the printing press making such scriptures cheap. St. Francis had very, very carefully navigated a path to take a message that was in many ways opposed to power and wealth and make it palatable to the powerful and the wealthy, or at least barely able to skirt that line and avoid being declared heretical as a movement. Similar movements to St. Francis did not manage to pull off the same feat And so throughout the 12th, 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries, we see time and again these bubbling upsurges of reform within Catholicism, many of which have a profound impact on Rome. But then, a generation later, that impact can be forgotten as new leadership chooses to crack down or chooses to favor a different country in their policy. We do ourselves a grave disservice if we try to go back and paint all of medieval Catholicism with one brush. And unfortunately, that has been the trend with Mennonite historians, loving to wax on about the sale of indulgences or corruption or the conflicts between the popes and the kings of the world as though that were the whole story. And as though the faith and devotion of millions of souls who learned to be kind to one another, who learned to give more than they receive, who learned to be humble, to love poverty, and to seek justice, as though those stories mean nothing next to a a few popes who had it out in some ugly public forum. One of the biggest most successful and most influential of these pre-modern heresies were the Waldenses, who also were in many ways some of the most Anabaptist. They did not preach the core defining term that we are going to be talking about today, baptism. They did not preach a different baptism. But in many other ways, they hearkened directly to the concerns and the experiences of the early Anabaptist movement. It's interesting to hear how they are treated in the Mennonite histories in contrast to the Catholic Church, and how the historians that I was reading bring their own priorities and biases into full view as they discuss these precursor movements in Europe. 
The Waldenses may be readily known for their quiet, unassuming life. They are modest in their attire and wear neither costly nor unclean clothing. They live by the labor of their hands, and even their preachers are shoemakers and weavers. They do not lay up riches, but are content with that which is necessary. The Waldenses leave, live pure lives and are temperate in eating and drinking. They do not visit drinking houses and do not attend places of amusement. They exercise self-control and may be known by their considerate speaking, for they do not indulge in joking, slander, or gossip. These Mennonite historians from the 40s are a pill. But it's also fun to read modern historians talking about the Waldenses. Modern historians that bring their own priorities and favorite flavors of righteousness. You don't hear them talking about no jokes and uh, no going to the theater. Instead, you hear modern historians talking about how the Waldensians allowed women to preach publicly. How they were a group that, because of being under pressure and because of their openness to scripture and the inspiration of spirit, broke down social barriers, empowering the poor. It is very, very interesting to take a tour through the histories of the historians themselves, seeing how what we consider to be our highest priorities gets projected on these very diverse, very complicated groups of people. I want to warn us away from that a little bit. All of what was just said is true, and more, I'm sure, and false of some groups of Waldensians, I'm even more certain. What we are talking about today is not who was right. It is not who was wrong. What I wish to do in this series on Anabaptism is explain who we are, both as an individual community with its history, but more importantly, as a body of Christ and how we have conversed together. um, This is the Waldensians, some of their history. I I knew that... Spelling might be a bit of an issue, so I wanted to get their name up there. They still exist, are still a church, mostly joined with um, Protestant and Calvinist groups, but not entirely, still carrying some of their own unique history. The women of the Middle Ages were not as silent or submissive as later centuries would project them as being. It was very fashionable through the later modern era to look back and sneer at the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, calling it a time of of disease, ugliness, death, and pestilence. But as we've done better history, we found that, in fact, women were vital in almost all of these revivalist movements, whether the revivalist movements were deemed heretical or whether they were accepted in Rome and integrated into part of the tapestry of Catholicism, time and again, from the Franciscans through the Waldensians to these women, which were part of a group called Beguines, women found power and a voice and freedom from the expectation to get married and have children in the church. 
decade after decade, century after century. I say this because the rest of my entire thing is about to be a bunch of men. These are the, pe- the, the people whose names that we have, whose events, whose life events we have described from this time period are overwhelmingly men. But that is a result of who is doing the writing. And that is changing as we get more information, as we learn more about the past. The, the true, fully fleshed out picture is emerging. And appropriately enough, a fully fleshed out picture is halfway composed of women. So I wanted to start with them, with the, with the powerful influence of groups like the Beguines and their semi-monastic way of life where they lived under the authority of neither the, uh, the priestly hierarchy nor the hierarchy of abbots and monasteries n- nor even under the family hierarchy the patriarchal hierarchy that would have them living in the household of either a father or a husband. But instead, they found their own way directly under the authority and rulership of Christ. That direct rulership comes to be the core question which tears apart early modern Christianity. About ten years before Menno, which is not an abbreviation I think I'm going to make uh, very official, just doesn't have the right sound to it, but about ten years before Menno, the Zurich crew comes to be the, the first lightning flash of Anabaptism. They were followers of a man named Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland, in Zurich, Switzerland, who did not go far enough in their views. They start off his disciples and pupils, very interested in how he is reading scripture and directly applying it to the world in front of him. Remember, this is a back-to-the-basics movement, a return to scriptural authority and centrality, saying let's cut away all the tradition. If it doesn't show up in the Bible, we don't want to have anything to do with it. But Ulrich Zwingli stops short. He does not want to break with the very powerful and very sympathetic government in Zurich. And in particular, he breaks over the issue of baptism. Now here's where we get to the part of the sermon where I start to invite questions. If you have questions as we move forward, We're going to just go straight with all the best rule system we all have ingrained in us. Raise your hand, because this starts to get a little bit convoluted. This question of why was baptism so important to people? Why did baptism come to be the defining characteristic of the Anabaptist movement? And why was it the straw that broke the camel's back? How is it that within Catholicism you could have such radical diversity in terms of lifestyles, priorities, even beliefs, but somehow baptism was non-negotiable, a bridge too far? The baptism, the first baptism that occurred was uh, that central figure there who didn't look anything like that. These are based off of some faces you'll see in Parkview. 
The central figure right there, whose name was George Blaurock, George Bluecoat, a huge monk who got married after he decided that monasticism didn't have scriptural basis, fiery, loud, boisterous. The two men on his sides, Felix Mans and Conrad Grebel, are dorks. They have been to some of the best universities in, in, in Europe. They have been, they've attended classes in Brussels, Paris, and Vienna, three of the most important capitals. They speak Latin, Hebrew, and Greek. They are reading the Bible in the original language, so much for the influence of the Gutenberg press. They are reading the Bible in the original language, but George Blaurock is the firebrand. And it happened that they were together until fear struck them and came upon them, and they felt compelled in their hearts. Then they began to bend their knees before the highest God in heaven and called upon him as one who knows the heart and prayed him to show them mercy. For flesh and blood and human wisdom did not lead them to this act because they knew what they would have to pay for it. After that prayer, George of the house of Jacob stood up and besought Conrad Grable for God's sake to baptize him with the true Christian baptism upon his faith and knowledge. And when he knelt down with such a request and desire, Conrad baptized him, since at that time there was no ordained minister to perform such work. This is the account of the first anabaptism, the first rebaptism, the first person becoming convinced that their baptism as a child wasn't valid and then being struck with fear, terrified. Because they were now in their, George Blaurock felt that he was no longer with protected by the promises of Christ. For them, baptism was this incredibly important issue, something that seems a little bit foreign to us today. But for them, baptism was a sign of salvation. And who you trusted to do baptisms, how they were done, and when, were in many ways the only thing in this life that mattered. The Anabaptist position on baptism didn't go undisputed. It was a war waged on the battlefields of Scripture. At disputations in churches and in front of magistrates, time and again. The arguments boiled down on both sides essentially to this. The biblical accounts of people being baptized when it comes to speaking, when it comes to individuals, is almost, is always, in every account, an older person who has proclaimed faith of some degree. And the biblical account includes accounts of families being baptized. Whole families being brought into the church, which absolutely would have included children as well as slaves who wouldn't necessarily have made their own choice about what community their family was going to belong to. From 500 years distance, it's really easy for us to be gracious, to say that we can trust God to sort things out, and that our human differences in understandings of scriptures are secondary to our allegiance to Christ together. 
500 years ago, that was not so easy to say at all. And in fact, it was this issue of baptism, the issue of water, that first brought Anabaptism to bloodshed. Zwingli saw bloodshed as an irreversible consequence of pursuing separation on this issue of baptism. Accusing the Anabaptists of stirring up and seducing the populace, this is a quote, of mocking the regulations of the state and of the new church, its protege, and trying to erect a separate church whose task it was to overthrow the existing divine and human order. When I stumbled upon that quote, my jaw dropped because Ulrich Zwingli cracked the whole case. I believe Ulrich Zwingli was 100% correct that the reason why the Anabaptists cared so much about baptism wasn't a side effect of it being an important issue. It was because it was an important breaking issue. And that the early Anabaptist movement desired to break with the government and church system that had come before them. Trying to erect a separate church whose task it was to overthrow the existing divine and human order. Pretty much, yeah. These days, we don't talk so much about Conrad, Felix, and George, or the churches where they debated, or the populations that they roused. Because we have come to realize that although the first visible spark of Anabaptism may have occurred there with these three men, in fact, it was a regional upsurge, a regional movement with many points of origin and with many diverse groups of people involved. The three colors that you see here in Switzerland, in green, southern Germany, in blue, and the Netherlands, in purple, were all in communication with each other, but they all have their distinctive flavors, distinctive family names that come from these different paths. Zurich was not alone, and these three radicals very quickly found out that they weren't just speaking on their own behalf as the result of their own study and scholarship. Why is this so hard for us to understand? Well, our whole theory of history is based on the genius, the great man theory of history, the great moment, right? Who invented E equals MC squared? Albert Einstein. Kind of. Turns out that Henry Poincaré came to the same equation three years earlier in 1900. Olinta de Preto and Paul Levegnin also independently came to the same calculation within two years of Einstein's formulation. Before that, Charles Darwin discovered that a young colleague by the name of Alfred Russell Wallace was writing a book about natural selection just before he published The Origin of the Species. 
And you may have heard about Isaac Newton and Gottfried Leibniz duking it out about who discovered calculus first. With historians these days saying that there was no plagiarism. They actually discovered it independently about the same time. If something is specific as E equals MC squared can come forth in multiple places from multiple minds because of what was in the air, because of the motion of the times, the zeitgeist, the motion of a spirit, then why is it hard for us to believe that with the motion of the Holy Spirit, many independent people could come up with very similar idea about how to reform the church to bring it back to the basics and return it to the core of the New Testament over the course of a few years at similar at a similar play, time and similar place. The yellow on the right is the Moravians. Thank you. Of which we have some brethren with us today. This is called the theory of polygenesis. That it wasn't just Zurich and these scholars and these disputations and these specific arguments that birthed the Anabaptist movement, but it was the times that birthed the Anabaptist movement, and it burst into flower all over the place. There was a reason they couldn't stomp it out. And it is undeniable that part of what made Anabaptism pop up like weeds all over the place was the rejection it offered of those in authority at the time. The rejection of the church as it existed then and the rejection of the state. When Protestantism became adopted by the local lords and the local princes throughout Luther's sphere of influence and in parts of Switzerland as well, throughout Zwingli's sphere of influence, it wasn't like the peasants who were struggling daily for survival and who hated their wealthy masters, suddenly said, well, they've come around to our position on religion, so now, no. When the Protestant faith was adopted in many of these regions, what we find is that many groups of peasants who had once been Protestant become Anabaptist. They take their, their Reformation and they make it radical in order to remain opposed to the powers that be. And Zwingli's diagnosis of our radical forebears, I think, very much holds true. But a movement of this sort, bubbling up from the ground, coming from the desires of the times, from the hearts of people who are crying out in fear and oppression. A movement of that kind has an enormous amount of diversity, of dynamic potential, of hope, but also contains inevitably its own demise and a looming peril of violence. 
On the 7th of March, 1526, the Zurich Council had passed an edict that made adult rebaptism punishable by drowning because everyone understood that such rebaptisms implied a rejection of the whole system. And there wasn't much point in offering an olive branch if you required people to be part of the system. There wasn't much point in them saying, well, you can rebaptize yourselves, we just won't care, when the Anabaptists would have simply found another way to prove their rejection of the system. And on 5th of the January, 1527, still almost 10 years before Menno, Felix Mons, one of our three the three men that we spoke about earlier, became the first casualty of that edict, being drowned in the river in in Zurich. His last alleged words were, Into thy hands, O God, I commend my spirit. At this very, and during those very same years, a peasant rebellion has started in southern Germany and threatens to engulf all of Europe. A rebellion led and preached to by some select Anabaptist leaders. None of these three, but a pen pal of theirs, is there exhorting the troops to throw off their feudal overlords. The rebellion is an absolute catastrophic failure with 100,000 peasants killed in battle while about 1,000 of the feudal professional troops lose their lives. Bloodshed on a scale that is hard for us to really internalize. And violence comes to the Anabaptist movement. The question is posed. What kind of movement will you be? How will you respond when your leaders are drowned and when your uprising is crushed? What will blood do to the water of baptism that you hold so dear? It is a question that consumed the Mennonite writers and thinkers at the time. Sorry, anachronistic. The early Anabaptist writers and thinkers of the time. Who begin to write flurries of letters back and forth, inviting each other to conferences, and eventually crafting two different camps. The camp of peace and the camp of war. Next Sunday, we will move into the next decade, the 1530s, the years of Menno Simons, who preaches that we are a people of peace, lambs to the slaughter, never, ever to take up the power of the sword, and the time of the rebellion at Münster, when Anabaptists take over a city hold off a Catholic siege and enforce their bloody theocratic rule on an unsuspecting population. Ours is not a simple history, friend. 
And we can never look at it imagining that we are uniquely the good guys. Out of all the histories of the world, the Mennonites got it right. We have been shaped in the crucible of God's history to be what we are today, to do what we do today, to love one another and love God as we do today. And through the, and the story of that history is not the simple inspiration of God's perfect understanding dropping on three well-dressed dudes in Switzerland 500 years ago. The story is much more interesting, much more complex, and I believe much more spirit-filled than that. Please join me for a closing prayer. God of history, your hands at work baffle us. We are find ourselves in our limited understanding, hurt by what happens, hurt by how people understand it. Events 500 years ago and events that are taking place now. Give us a brief understanding of your ways a moment's peace to see that your influence is constant. Your guidance is certain. And that with simple faith in you, we can weather all things. Amen.